Welcome to our Science Set Free podcast, this particular episode. Um, I'm Mark Vernon, and um, I'm joined here with Rupert Sheldrake um, to talk about um, a question we haven't quite direct, directly addressed, I don't think, yet, but rattles around a lot, I think, for me, and also maybe um, uh, in various parts of modern Western culture. Um, and it's the question, what is spirituality? I, I don't know how you feel about this, but I have this sense that Many people want to hold on to some notion of the spiritual, but it's quite hard to talk about. They're not quite sure what it means. It's quite easy to be rather aggressively attacked for wanting to hold on to this, this dimension of life. And I just wonder whether we might be able to um, share some ideas as to what the spiritual dimension might be, um, how we might talk about it, whether we're just making basic mistakes, even asking the question, what is the spiritual? Maybe that's sort of setting up in the wrong way. Um, I mean, m- maybe some options which I've I've kind of heard and um, see what you think of them. I mean, sometimes people talk about how there's kind of different aspects to what it is to be human. So there is the biological and the material aspect, and then there's the sort of emotional and psychological aspect. But there seems to be a need for uh, a je ne sais quoi aspect as well um, that comes out, for example, when people say, oh, the music was very soulful. Um, it's not that um, it was you know, mathematically brilliantly constructed. And it wasn't so much that it affected them emotionally, although it did. There seems to be a soulful element that, that w- only that word soul will do it. Um, and sometimes I think maybe that's the spiritual. Um, but then I think of it in other ways. And I wonder whether actually the spiritual is about that part of life, which is sort of lived beyond us. Um, you know, we tend to think we're more or less in control. We're more or less making decisions. And yet perhaps... A deeper truth would be that um, we're sort of immersed in fields of spiritual connection or um, some kind of um, engagement with life that is sort of between us rather than in me and in you. And then we sort of try to communicate like billiard balls knocking. Mm. Um, I don't know. That would be a very different notion of the spiritual and one which would um, perhaps give rise to even offence, um, given um, sort of scientific paradigms that tend to dominate um, our imaginations. Um, so yeah, I mean, there the probably be other ways of talking about it as well. But d- does that make any sense? Yes, I think for me, there's a distinction between the soul and the spirit. I mean, I think the soul is part of our normal being, and it's uh, to do with emotions and even psychic connections, which things like telepathy, which I think are not spiritual but psychic or natural. Um, I mean, dogs are telepathic. Uh, telepathy is an evolved form of animal communication. So I think that the spiritual is more than that, and it's more than the social. I mean, we're embedded in social systems that are bigger than ourselves, with with duties and obligations and relationships to members of our families, our friends, the social groups we're part of, our, our nations, and so on. Um, I think... For me, the the spiritual seems to refer to something that goes beyond the human level. It's not just about other human beings. It can involve other human beings, but I'd call that more social. Um, And I think it is connected with the idea of a form of consciousness beyond the human level, or maybe many forms of consciousness beyond the human level. When people talk of spirits in connection with shamanism, for example animal spirits or the spirits of the ancestors Um, they're talking about 
more than human or non-human spiritual entities. Some of them are ex-human spiritual entities, but they're um, beyond the normal social world. Um, so when people talk about God, they're talking about a spiritual reality that goes beyond the human level. And people who don't want to talk about God, but just want to talk about other levels or wholeness or something, are in different ways referring to a form of consciousness beyond our own. It seems to me the real question, the dividing line between atheists and people who are spiritual, including people who are spiritual but not religious, is what people think about consciousness. Most atheists think that consciousness is confined to human beings and maybe other human-like animals, possibly including ones on other planets, um, but that the whole of the rest of the universe is unconscious. The laws of nature are unconscious. The operations of nature are unconscious. The stars, the galaxies, the cosmos as a whole are unconscious. Everything on Earth is unconscious, except for animals with big enough brains, ourselves, and perhaps other higher animals, or for liberal materialists, maybe even worms as well, lower animals, but at any rate, confined to animal minds. So if there's a form of consciousness beyond the human level, then direct experience of that or connecting with it, I think, would be what most people mean by spirituality. How does that seem to you? Yes, I'm wondering um, how that relates to the kinds of things which people call spiritual. Um, you know, what's going on when someone lights a candle, not in order to for the light, but in order symbolically to um, access, it were access access a sort of spiritual dimension, or to give uh, as a spiritual gesture, um, or you know, perhaps music is the most obvious case. The the kind of music that people feel is spiritual. Um, how does that link to what you're describing as spiritual? This bit, the, the, how does that link to the idea of different consciousnesses? Well, when people light candles in churches, for example, or just at home, if unless it's just decorative, you know, a, a dinner party table, you have candles because they look nice. If there's more to it than that, um, like lighting a candle in a church, um, it's usually associated with saying a prayer or making some kind of invocation. Um, and saying a prayer or making an invocation, at least implicitly, relates to a form of consciousness beyond the human level, because you, you don't say a prayer to blank unconscious matter. Um, you only say a prayer to some conscious being who might be able to hear it or understand it. Therefore, it implies some kind of consciousness beyond the human level, even if it's not made explicit. But all prayers that are explicit start with an invocation. You know, Our Father who art in heaven, Om Namah Shivaya, which is calling on the name of Shiva, um, or um, Hail Mary, full of grace. All these invocations are to beings other than ourselves, conscious beings other than ourselves. So it seems to me that any form of spirituality, um, with or without religion, um, seems to depend on this assumption there are forms of consciousness beyond our own. For an atheist, there is no consciousness beyond our own, unless it's other people a bit like us, with whom we might be able to communicate across space by radio signals or something like that. It reminds me of a friend of mine who is an atheist, and she um, teaches improvisation. Um, and she, I think, I'd be fair to say, 
would, would feel that is a sort of spiritual activity because what happens in really good improvisation is some kind of joining of consciousness, you might say. Um, you as it were get into a zone collectively that is more than just the sum of the parts. Some, some wider operation seems to be taking hold and so teaching improvisation as i understand it anyway is about becoming more open to that mode of being so would that still would that still fit in um how you're talking about spirituality which it seems to me has the great clarity that it's about you've you sort of um you know put down on the table as it were it's about communicating with other forms of consciousness um which has a, a sort of real clarity to it um, but can it embrace these perhaps more uh, less well-defined notions of the use as well? Well, I think improvisation involves two aspects. One is that if you're improvising with other people, then obviously you're connecting with other forms of consciousness, but these are human consciousness. It's like a conversation. You can't have a conversation on your own. I mean, like you and I are talking now, I don't know what you're going to say next. And so therefore it's an interactive process and there's a mind involved other than mine, namely yours. So if I were improvising music with you, then that would be the very minimum that was going on. You and I would be having a kind of musical conversation or interaction. So there'd be more than just my mind involved. We both our minds and one could argue on a kind of holistic principle that because we're making music together, the whole's more than the sum of the parts and there's a, a kind of wholeness to the music. Um, which is beyond both of us, of which we're both part. But most people would not think that involved or implied any other form of consciousness than human consciousness. It's simply an interaction of human consciousness. That's one level, and one could take it that way, and I imagine that most atheists would interpret it that way. But the, where the other dimension comes in is the traditional belief in every culture that creativity is or can be, inspired. And inspired literally means breathing in, in spiration. Spirit, spiration is breathing. Spirit means breath or wind. Inspiration, it's breathed into you from a creative source beyond yourself. And most people in the past believed that they were inspired by spirits of various kinds, angels. In Greek um, culture, the muses nine muses, each of which inspires a particular branch of art. That's why we have museums and why we call music music, because it's inspired by muses. Um, and um, many Christian composers like Mozart and Bach thought that their, the inspiration was coming through them for their music. And so any form of creativity uh, doesn't just come from you and me. It's something new that comes into you and me, or anyone else who's creative. And where does it come from? So, implicitly, if it's inspired, there's the idea there's something else breathing into us or through us. And so if you're improvising music with somebody else, and there's some other dimension to it, other than just working together to produce something harmonious, if there's an unexpected inspirational quality, it could be that one's open to a form of consciousness beyond both the people involved. In that sense, music could be a spiritual activity, and it might be hard to tell the difference. And for people who don't believe in the spirit, uh, it means they literally don't believe in inspiration. And that would mean that someone who doesn't believe in the spirit would create works of art that are literally uninspired. Um, 
Do you think science can be inspired in that sense? Would would science be a spiritual activity? I tell you why. I'm as you were talking, I was just reading uh, reading Walter Isaacson's biography of Einstein, and there's a section in that where he talks about Einstein's genius. And of course, genius has notions. I think in the etymology of channeling something. Um, it's not just that you create something brilliantly yourself, but actually you're you're open to channeling something. Um, and he talks about how he thinks that, um, well, Einstein himself put it down to a certain kind of curiosity. But it wasn't just, uh, as I understood it anyway, it wasn't just an investigative sort of curiosity, a prodding curiosity. Um, it was a more, what he called a childlike curiosity that believed that curiosity actually has a purpose in the cosmos um, in order to to sort of uh, realise the cosmos in some way. And so, for example, he explicitly, I believe, said that things like intuition and imagination were equally as important as more rational processes like experimentation or developing mathematical theories. Um, and I guess, you know, it's, it's, it's a, people want to claim Einstein for their own, but he does make these comments about uh, his physics in inspiring a sense of the, the spirit that uh, could cause the, the cosmos, you know, to come to be or something, words to that effect, I think. Um, so do you think, um, maybe putting Einstein to one side, but do you think even science could be a spiritual activity? Oh, I'm sure it often is. I mean, scientists, when they have a new an idea, a hypothesis, a guess or an insight, um, many of them just say it just came to them. You know, it, it comes through them as opposed to coming from them. And the word genius, as you say, is, is a word for spirit. It means spirit. And in Latin, and in the classical world, people thought that people had a genius, a spirit that guided them, a very like the idea of a guardian angel. And so, when people would have said, you know, two or three hundred years ago, Einstein had a genius. Well, in a kind of atheistic world where people don't believe in his spirits, then Einstein becomes a genius, and it's attributed to something going on in his brain, which is why his brain was donated to science and there are all these people who've been slicing it up trying to find out the seat of genius well interestingly um, Isaacson in his biography is very sniffy about that yes. he says you know, it's not what's going on in the brain that mattered it's what was going on in his mind Yes, and that immediately opens you to this more intangible element I guess exactly Yeah. but you see in Einstein's particular case and in the case of mathematicians like for example Sir Roger Penrose who's written about this very explicitly um most theoretical physicists and mathematicians are secret Platonists. Um, they don't usually admit it in public because it sounds weird. And for most of us, it is rather weird. They believe that beyond the world we experience and live in, there's a kind of intellectual realm filled with mathematical formulae or mathematical principles, and that these are a timeless realm of Platonic ideas or forms. More strictly, I suppose it could be called Pythagorean, because it was Pythagoras who influenced Plato and gave the idea that the ultimate reality is mathematical. They think that when they discover a new mathematical formula, they're actually discovering it. They're not inventing it, they're discovering it. They're revealing, or they're the channel through which an eternal truth is being revealed. And Sir Roger Penrose makes this very clear when when a mathematician makes a discovery. It's uncovering an eternal truth that's there traditionally in the mind of God. But for atheists, then there's just this free-floating mathematical mind. Extraordinarily mysterious, if you think about it. Um, 
And Penrose has a whole discussion in one of his books about how you explain a mathematical idea to another person. He said you can make symbols, you can make gestures, but what happens is they can suddenly get it. And he says what's happening is that you're opening the way so that they can actually directly see this eternal mathematical truth. It's a kind of platonic insight. So that would be spiritual in the sense this platonic mathematical intellectual world is a mind or spirit beyond the human. Would they call it a mind or a spirit? I mean, I'm just wondering, I, there's, there's a lot of nervousness, uh, as you were saying, amongst plate, amongst the physicists um, calling themselves Platonists and resistance to doing that. Um, and of course, you know, Roger Penrose is one of the exceptions that says, look, we've got to fess up here. Yes. This is what's going on. Um, but would he, I think he would resist the idea that it was a spiritual mind or a consciousness. The Platonic world is this rather sort of, I, I get a sense from him that it's this rather dry, abstract, um, sort of parallel, um, reality. But, but, um, you know, it's not, it's not living in any sense, I don't think. Or I, 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 I don't know, maybe you get a different sense from him. I think for someone like Penrose, it's the supreme reality. The whole of his professional life has been devoted to it. So I don't think it's just dry and abstract. I think it's rather juicy for a mathematician. It's the ultimate reality that can reveal itself. Now, a world of ideas, which is what it is, a Platonic or Pythagorean realm, is a realm of ideas. Well, if ideas don't exist in physical reality, which by definition they don't, you don't actually meet a mathematical law. You don't look at, down a microscope and see one. You don't look up into the sky with the Hubble Space Telescope and see an equation written across the sky. You infer the existence of these invisible laws which transcend space and time. They're supposed to be beyond space and time. And they're ideas and they're not physical. Well, what kind of reality can they possibly have if they're not in some sense mental or spiritual? Um, I think they're just evading the issue. Uh, they're implying it but they don't want to say it explicitly because then people would say, oh, well, that must be the mind of God or something like that. And they know they live in an atheistic world and some of them may even be atheists. So they want to have their cake and eat it. They want the whole of scientific reality to depend on an eternal mathematical realm of ideas which are not physical, which are transcendent, and yet somehow not say they're spiritual or conscious. Um, but I think they have to be. Historically, that's what the mind of God for 17th century scientists, it was quite clearly God's mind. God was a mathematician. This was the mind of God. That's why it's transcendent. That's why it's universal. That's why it's timeless, because it partook in these rather platonic qualities of 17th century theological conceptions of God. I guess the materialist scientists would want to just say they're patterns, you know, we, we're, we're in the pattern detecting business and these patterns are sort of self-causing because they're the ones that patterns are sustainable, for example. You know, pure chaos just always disintegrates and disappears. Um, so it's not that we're um, engaging with some kind of timelessness that is somehow imprinted upon a physical world or, or, or implicit in a physical world. It's just that the physical world, um, that which is going to last will be that which is patterned. I mean, it's no more significant than that. Well, that's one possible approach. I don't think it's the approach of people like Penrose, because I think they do believe in an eternal platonic realm. He explicitly says so. Um, that would be the more hard-nosed empirical view. Well, they're just patterns that we observe. We observe repeatable patterns. Um, they just happen to be there in nature. The interesting thing about that is that most scientists don't really take it seriously. 
If you take seriously the idea that science is just about describing patterns, we live in an evolutionary universe. So this means the patterns evolve. And so, in a sense, then, they're what I'm saying and have been saying for years, they're more like habits. They're patterns that haven't always been there. They won't necessarily always be there. They're like habits that come into being in the course of evolution. And they must imply some kind of memory if you get recurrent patterns. And the only way out of that is to say, well, actually, the patterns are determined by eternal equations that were all there at the beginning, at the moment of the Big Bang. And most scientists do believe that, at least implicitly, because the big debate in cosmology about the universe versus multiverse says the laws of nature and the constants of nature were fixed at the moment of the Big Bang in such a way that it gave rise to a universe that contains us, intelligent beings. It could have been otherwise. So you've got two ways of thinking then, either the, the sort of mathematical god who fine-tunes it all at the beginning, an intelligent designer, or a multiverse of billions or quadrillions of parallel universes, and this just happens to be the one we're in. But this extraordinary, spe extraordinary speculation which dominates modern cosmology presupposes that the laws and constants aren't just evolving patterns, that they were fixed at the beginning. So however much someone might deny they believe it, this whole debate presupposes that assumption. So I think it's a hopeless muddle. And I think it's a muddle because people are trying to deny a kind of spiritual source, and yet they deeply believe in it. That's, fa that's fascinating. It, it's reminded me of um, uh, a book I was just reading recently by um, an MIT physicist called Max Tegmark. Um, and the book's about many things. Um, he's actually a, a, a very... Um, uh, explicit Pythagorean actually he thinks that the reason why maths works in physics is because the universe is a mathematical entity um, but he in one part of the book he talks about how it should be very moving and inspiring to us because we're made of stardust you know the carbon in our bodies was made inside some long gone star and it made me think why is that a moving thing because it's also the case I believe that the air I breathe has air molecules that Hitler breathed, for mm. example. And yet I don't find that meaningful and inspiring. Mm. Um, you've got to, he's sort of appealing to more than just the material um, nature of reality in these with carbon atoms. And yet at the same time, not wanting to appeal to more um, than the material reality. So I, I think you see this sort of strange dance that goes on in modern physics, especially when it turns outwards and tries to appeal to the public and inspire us in various ways. I think what lies behind the stardust thing is is um, the idea that everything comes from a common origin. You see, the Big Bang Theory says at one time the universe was like a kind of cosmic egg or primeval atom, which is what um, the founder of the Big Bang um, Theory called it, Lemaitre. Um, he, he said it was the primeval atom, but it's basically the cosmic egg theory, that you start with an initial unity, the Big Bang, and then this rapidly expands and diversifies, and the universe, as we know it, comes about through the expansion and cooling of this initial event. But it basically says everything in nature has a common source, everything's related, everything goes back to that original beginning. And so we're um, related to the stardust, and the stardust came from the first stars, and the stars came from the initial Big Bang. It's a bit like Darwin's theory of evolution, which points to the idea that all life had a common beginning. We're all descended from a single ancestral cell. It's a kind of molecular or cell biological version of Adam and Eve. It's uh, that 
We all have the same kind of DNA, the same kinds of proteins. Bacteria have DNA and RNA and proteins that are very like ours. Minor differences, but basically the same family of chemicals in all living things, pointing to a common ancestor. Now, I think this is a very mythic theme. It comes in religious traditions throughout the world. It's a mythic theme, the idea we're all related because we're all descended from a common source. And I think that's one of the things that this kind of popular science plays into. And it's, if it's true, as I suppose it is, then it is indeed very interesting and it is rather awe-inspiring that we're all related and all connected. And that's, in a sense, a kind of spiritual insight because it's saying that there's a oneness that goes beyond all our individual beings and indeed beyond the realm of humanity and beyond the realm of the earth or the solar system or even our galaxy we're all part of something much larger than ourselves which is governed by laws and principles uh, which are themselves not material and that's what science is appealing to in this the awe and wonder aspect of it and that then takes us back in a way to where we began which is the idea that um, if there's a kind of connection that's not just material, and that seems to be the case because there are ideas that work across the universe as we know it, as you were saying, whether they be interpreted platonically or not, that would seem to be the case. Um, and then you're saying that that has to be, in some sense, connected to a consciousness or a spirit that um, that percolates throughout the cosmos as well. It's just that people are uncomfortable, so they resist it. But I'm going to take away very much the idea that Perhaps the reason why the spiritual is difficult to talk about, and yet we want to try and talk about it, is because we want to resist this notion that there's a consciousness um, that we can somehow connect with that's different from our own. And uh, if we can get over that, as it were, then maybe these things um, just fall more naturally into place. Well, the only people who want to resist that are, are materialists who resist it on principle. Most other people, which includes the vast majority of humanity, are perfectly happy to accept it, indeed take it for granted. It's true, although I even think that people that believe in God don't somehow um, feel that uh, it's something that pervades all things. Um, there's the kind of, there's the God consciousness, and then there's, uh, you know, there's there's me in a sort of dyadic relationship, as it were, but the, this more panentheistic idea, you might say, that it pervades all things, I think is... Uh, um, is, a, is a, a more expansive notion than perhaps even many religious people would want to adopt, in the West anyway. I think that's partly because religion's been sort of pushed off into, into a separate compartment from science, which deals with the whole cosmos. And what used to be called natural theology, the idea of the theology of nature, has, has been sort of shrunken down, to, and, and science has the whole arena of the cosmos as its own ground, and religions retreated into this more dyadic sense. But that's where I think what we need is a coming together of the perspectives of science and religion, where these great scientific insights about cosmology can reinform a new kind of religion. Well, that would seem to be a great moment on which to finish. So, Rupert Sheldrake, thank you very much. Oh, thanks, Mark.